On this week's episode of the Trailmark Podcast, we're riding alongside Chris Lee, a digital marketer by day with a passion for cycling and storytelling by night. In his debut self-published book, Eastwards and Far, Chris recounts his epic journey across Canada, a narrative that spins together the beauty of the landscapes with the warmth of human connection found along the way. This is a conversation about the wheels that move us, the paths that challenge us, and the stories that connect us. Join us as we explore what it means to truly engage with the world on two wheels, the transformative power of bike tours, and the stories that emerge when we say yes to the road less traveled. I mean, we have so much to talk about here because you and I share a lot of similar interests in this whole uh, bikepacking genre, if you will. I mean, I don't know about you, but I started bikepacking, I guess, at the beginning of COVID. So it's been about three full seasons here. But I know that in your book, you mentioned that you started way back in around 2013-ish. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the beginning of your story. Yeah, sure. So it was actually the first the first ride that I went on that I'd consider a tour was probably March 2011. And that was riding from Leeds University, where I was studying at the time, across to Berlin in Germany. It was a big group ride with the university. There was there's probably about 40 to 50 cyclists split out into different groups based on ability. And we had a support van with us that took all our bags, drove ahead of us, set up camp each night, made sure there was food when we arrived, and just gave us sort of a very generous idea of what a bike tour could be like. And then later that year, me and my friend Alex, who features in the book, me and him rode from his place down on the south coast of the UK to a Glastonbury festival, which is the sort of big famous music festival. Um, and that was just me and him, all of our bikes, uh, all of our bags attached to our bikes doing it all ourselves on a much hillier route no idea when we set off in the morning where we'd be sleeping that night so all like a lot more improvised and rough and ready and to me that was more that was a closer experience to what touring has been like since so yeah one year two tours quite different but both planted the seed that i was really keen to to grow over the next few years must have been quite, I mean, it's been about 10 years, maybe a little bit over 10 years for you then, I guess, this whole journey of bikepacking, which is which is quite epic. And when I was reading your story, I noticed that at the very beginning, when you first started, you mentioned that you initially started off with a, a low step bike. Was that the very first official touring bike that you started with? Yeah, the first. So those two rides were on different bikes, uh, neither of which I owned. The first one was a sort of dropped handlebar road bike that was a size too small for me that I borrowed off someone else. Because I couldn't, uh, I was quite a frugal student by necessity, so I didn't have money to buy my own bike. So I borrowed one off of a friend who was smaller than me and actually injured myself riding it because I couldn't, I didn't understand the geometry very well. And my knee started hurting on the second day and I just kept pushing it, thinking that I'd sort of blast through the injury and it would be fine. In the, in the end, couldn't walk for a couple of weeks after I got back. And the Glastonbury ride, I rented a bike from the campus bike hub and they had a scheme where they were trying to get students, teachers, staff to ride from home to university rather than driving or um yeah driving so for i think it was like 50 pounds a year which is probably about i don't know 80 dollars 90 dollars or something they'd give you a bike um and it was really heavy city bike not elegant or graceful at all like a, a rack on the back i think it had three gears total or something so it really wasn't designed for like anything special and riding that over the south downs which is sort of i don't know it's not a mountain range it's like a big line of hills that goes across the south of the uk and riding it over those in muddy terrain was really really challenging but but good fun sure good to get I the mean, experience exactly right i mean i've read i've read online that basically the best way to do bike packing is just to take whatever bike you have and make it work no yep, matter what definitely. the situation is so you can't really go wrong i mean if it has two wheels and whatever other components you need you can just basically toss on a backpack 
duct tape some bags to the to the racks and whatnot. It's quite the interesting sport. So what bike is this? Is this the bike that you actually went on the tour with, or did you just sketch that up or something? So that's a bike that I found on Google that looks kind of like the one I rode across Canada with. Um, okay. And I got my my friend is an illustrator, and I asked if he could sort of sketch the bike that I found the picture of. So it looks very similar. Can you hold it up again? Actually, I, can, I don't have a copy to hand, but I can. So it's yeah, basically the same, except my one has the sort of bar going up to the saddle, joins just below the saddle rather than being offset, oh, and there's yeah. a front a front rack. And I've got like, as well as the dropped handlebar brakes, I've also got like bug antenna brake handles on top of the handlebar. So you've got two choices for braking positions. I wanted to have as many like comfortable positions to ride in as possible rather than being forced like to the drop position. Interesting. Yeah. I've never actually ridden a drop handlebar bike myself, but I heard there's a lot of benefits to it, especially when you're on the bike all day long. It's just, it provides another handle to orientate yourself. I don't know. I've never actually had too much of a problem with that myself. I, I've heard of a lot of people encountering issues when it came to, I mean, especially in your book. In your book, I feel like you almost spend the first like couple chapters. I'm just looking at my phone with all my, uh, of course you can't, the camera's not picking it up, but this, I have your book on Kindle and I made Sweet. a whole ton of highlights. So that's just what I'm looking at here. Yeah, awesome. And um, it, it feels like you spent so much time trying to find the right fit because you had so many injuries and, and so did your friend. He had that little knee injury, which I don't know if that was caused by bad geometry of, of a bike or something. But yeah. I mean, you guys really struggled with that for a long time, eh? Yeah, so his injury was caused, I think, by running. So he's a very active guy and he, he runs, he climbs, he cycles, he does all sorts. And over the years, he's just sort of collected a bunch of injuries. And at that point, I think it was running related. So he managed to, his bike he'd had for years and it was configured properly and didn't aggravate his injuries. So I had the two bikes I mentioned and then I saved up and bought a decent bike that got stolen. And then I bought another bike that was similar to that that I ended up having to abandon somewhere because of ridiculous circumstances. So I got to the point where I'd gone through about four bikes and didn't have one about three months before we were planning to ride across Canada. So I just very quickly had to make something work. And the bike I was riding didn't actually cause me any injuries, but I was very aware that I'm prone to knee injuries. And on the first couple of rides I took it on, I could feel the twinge developing. So I was like, I need to I need to sort this out before, we, before I take it on the plane because I don't want to get 10 miles out of Vancouver and then have to turn back. So... So yeah, I basically just got, I paid, I planned to pay for a bike fit, managed to negotiate a sort of quid pro quo arrangement with the guy who gave the bike fit, where I gave him some online marketing advice and it was like a trade rather than having to pay for it. But yeah, I, I definitely recommend it. If you're prone to injuries, then the fit, the bike fit, just put everything permanently to bed. And I've not had any problems with that knee since, and it's been six years now. So definitely worked. That's awesome to hear. I mean, I know there's individuals like my uncle, for example, who is a huge cyclist. He he's spent so much money trying to get the right bike. You know, just like getting the geometry right, getting the fit right, making sure that everything's all ergonomic. Even getting one of those custom saddles where over time it molds to the shape of you know, it, it's it's quite the endeavor doing that. I mean, I, I feel like I've been quite fortunate in that last summer or last spring i guess i uh i finally went and i bought a bike rather than just using my dad's old bike and i just and i just went to them and i said okay i think i need a large frame bike just based on my height and they're like sure these are the large ones here and then i just picked one and it's caused really no problems i've had it almost uh, completely stock since I did some customization with the gears and whatnot over the summer, but I don't know. I guess it's just uh, different for everybody. Yeah, that's um, really good. I've heard some people who ride like like you say, they get a bike off the shelf, ride it for their whole life, and have no problems. And then I've also heard people who ride a bike once and think it is a really painful activity because the bike isn't set up for them. 
and they see that that they never cross that barrier so they never they never ask what they can do to change it to make it more comfortable they just assume that cycling is a painful activity and give up on it so it's interesting that spectrum i mean the only reason i feel like i got into cycling was partially due to me finding running so uncomfortable mm -hmm. i mean I, i've never been too much of a runner or anything like that or a swimmer but when it came to the bike i found it was such a low impact on everything that you could basically just get on and it was smooth sailing from there on out in a lot of ways just because it was so comfortable of a th of a sport to do yeah something i want to ask you about because i'm about I've, I've read about a third of the book so i'm at the point here where you guys are just entering the flats near saskatchewan yeah and it took you guys a long time which i don't which i don't blame you for it's quite an uncomfortable experience especially in a in a foreign country if you will like i imagine if i went to the uk i would have this exp this same problem and that mm -hmm. problem is wild camping right yep. you guys you guys just couldn't quite do it you you guys were like trying to do it for so long you know trying to find the right location and then things just kept happening you know perhaps you could tell me a little bit more about your experience when it comes to wild camping and maybe where you're at now after all these years yeah sure so before the ride we me and christian my friend would meet up after work cycle off into the countryside in the uk and wild camp with no problems whatsoever we'd like find a spot we'd be happy there we'd be away from people and we'd get a good sleep so we thought we had the feel for it but like you say when you get to a different country all your sort of subconscious checks are subtly different and it doesn't work quite as smoothly so we were aware of the concept of crown land mm -hmm. and that theoretically you could camp on crown land but we couldn't find any reliable maps that showed where crown land was so that was there was the permission aspect where we didn't want to we we're both really keen to not do anything that would reduce people's opinions of bike tourists in general so mm -hmm. we didn't want to accidentally camp somewhere where we'd get in trouble and then make it more difficult for cyclists to access that land in the future so that was kind of on our mind there's always a residual fear of bears that we don't have to deal with in the uk and it probably isn't as bad as it feels in canada but when we were getting used to it, that was like right at the forefront of our mind every day. So anywhere that felt like remotely wild, we just couldn't quite convince ourselves to do it, I guess. And then also there was just so many more comfortable, cheap campsites than we expected. So it was very easy to be like, oh, we'll just camp here tonight. This looks lovely. And then tomorrow we'll wild camp. And we found ourselves doing that for like 10 to 14 days, I guess. There was in the book, I, I sort of set it up as a, this sort of three consecutive nights where we camp at a campsite then a more rustic campsite and then finally camp wild there was actually one day i think it was the second day out of vancouver where we camped sort of half wild in what it was a campsite but there was no one there and there was just a, a system in place where you were supposed to leave money but no one came to collect it and we couldn't figure out where to leave it so sort of half wild camping but yeah once we got into the rhythm of it it was fine and we were sort of aware of we got we refined that system of checks where we felt like we weren't gonna get in trouble, get anyone else in trouble, get eaten by a bear or whatever. So yeah, we found yeah. it. But yeah, there's some really nice campsites in BC and it was just really inviting to stay in them <laughs> as well. And that sort of, that got, they got more scarce as we went into Saskatchewan as well. So it was partly by necessity. I mean, especially the whole bear aspect of it, right? If it was, if it was so unlikely, like you look at, if you actually look at the statistics, the odds of anything happening are so negligible. But also whenever you mention that you're going to Canada, everyone's like, oh, you're going to get eaten by a bear. Oh, yeah, right. how are you going to defend yourself against a bear? And there's this the same list of questions you get from every single person you talk to. So it's, you're very primed to be aware of the risk. So there's that like mental gymnastics of balancing probability with fear which was quite quite an interesting experience. I mean, I, I did a little bit of a bike tour last year. And ever since I started reading your book, I've been thinking like, oh, I wonder if Chris has been uh, on this trail system before. And the, the bike tour that I did was just around Ontario. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, 10 days, 1,000 kilometers, 100K a day. And it was starting 
in uh, near St. Peterborough uh, or Petersburg. I, I always get that wrong. And it went up through near Algonquin Park. It went about mm -hmm. the first day was 100K north up to Algonquin Park. And then it basically followed the whole Trans-Canada Trailway east. And then it was over to Ottawa and then all the way down south to Kingston. And then it was back west to Toronto and it was just a full loop. Maybe one of these days I'll email you the map and you can you can confirm if you ever went on any of those trails. Yeah, I'd like to see that, definitely. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll definitely send that to you then. How and... did you find it? Like is that the first is that the furthest to field you've been? Yeah. That was so it was it was loosely based off of a map that I found on bikepacking.com. On that site, there's a bunch of routes that people have done in the past. Mm -hmm. And basically what I did was I just took a route, which I believe was called the Colt route which is short for something that i forget now and i just modified it because that that route i believe was four or five hundred kilometers something like that and i just basically if it, if it was a big circle on the map i basically just expanded that circle mm, and just nice. said like okay let's just make it more epic and just loosely yep. base it on this anyways it was it was a 10-day trip and i'll tell you a quick story here I had planned out everywhere I was going to stay for those 10 days, which looking back on it in retrospect, maybe wasn't the best way to do it because then I was forced to go a certain distance every day. But on the first day, on the very first day, the, the campsite that I was trying to get to, the one that I had booked for the night, was blocked by a bunch of loggers. And I pulled up to someone's cottage at like nine o'clock at night. And, and, you know, after the sun had set, it's just like some random dude on a bike and I, and they're all sitting on their front porch and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm lost. How do I get to here? And they're like, oh, dude, you got to go way back and around. And it's like another 40 kilometers at 9 p.m. at night. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, all right, well, that's not happening. So I was forced into wild camping on day one. And I just found a little community center, which I was just hoping and praying wasn't actually someone's house. Just basically threw the sleeping pad down and just wrapped myself in a down jacket and just hope for the best. I don't know. I never actually had the thought of like, okay, I'm going to get eaten by a bear tonight. Yeah, that's good. Which sounds like such a worry that you guys had. I mean, how much of a worry was that actually for you? It was on my mind every night. Yeah. Across the whole of the country, even in places like, well, obviously not in cities and stuff, but every night we were out in the country, it was in my mind. And the first few nights it was loud in my mind, but by the end of it, it was just like a, a passing thought. But it's interesting how it doesn't seem to be that big a deal. It seems to be like an awareness for people who live in Canada, but not like an active thought necessarily. But it's just hyped up a lot when you're visiting Canada. So. If I went back now, it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be that phased. But the first time it's just, well, that, this wasn't the first time, actually. This tour was the second time I'd cycled in Canada and it was on my mind before that as well. So maybe it would be there again. Exactly. I mean, I wonder what would be the big fear for me as a Canadian going to the UK? We've got really bad mosquitoes in Scotland. That's oh. probably the closest you're going to get. There's nothing, nothing dangerous wildlife-wise. Well, I think we've got one type of poisonous snake, but it's not that dangerous. And no one I know has ever seen one. So they're that, they're that rare. I guess maybe the traffic. I think there's a stereotype, which is probably fairly well founded, that the traffic is generally worse here. So there's se there's sections of um, the Trans Canada where people in Canada were like, "Oh, you can't cycle on that. That's insane. You're like you'll die." Like the bit going around Lake Superior, for example, is one bit that stands out. But to me, that felt like a fairly quiet version of roads we'd get in the UK connecting sort of big cities or points of interest. So maybe you'd find the traffic more intense. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I always find that. I guess it's different, right? Because your tour was three months. Mine was only 10 days. And so I guess, I don't know, maybe you can tell me a little bit about what you think of this. 
I always found towns and cities so intimidating because I'm very much just, I like to be by myself when I'm on these tours. I don't really like to mingle with large crowds, especially when I, and some of that fear is mainly because I have a bike loaded with everything that I own mm -hmm. and I just don't want to leave it parked somewhere. And um, so I just try to, I just try to skip past them where I just like go in, oh, do I need water? Do I need food? What do I need something? And if the answer is no, then I just sort of blast past it. I remember there were so many times on this trip of mine where I was sort of forced off of the route that I initially planned on going on. And I ended up on a lot of big highways. And if you want to talk about scary traffic, just like these massive semi-trucks blasting past you, that's some scary stuff. Did you ever experience anything like that? Any crazy close calls with traffic? No close calls. There were I always found that the, the semis gave you so much space. So most, I say most of the Trans-Canada that we rode on was one lane in either direction, right? And then you've got maybe a meter or two meters of shoulder on each side, which is usually well-surfaced enough that you can ride on without having to go into the road. So most of the time we were riding in the shoulder and anytime a truck came past, it would go into the opposite lane if it was clear to give us like a full lane of space around us which isn't something that would happen in the UK. I feel like usually in the UK, an A-road, which is like the equivalent type of infrastructure, I guess, would have two lanes in each direction and both would usually be fairly full or busy. So I feel like I'm, my, def, my understanding of like a close call is more like in the UK where a truck goes right past you with 30 centimetres gap going at sort of 80 kilometres, 90 kilometres an hour. And there weren't any moments in Canada like that. I remember one driver giving us the finger and shouting at us and being a bit aggressive, but that was the only negative experience we had across the whole country. So I don't know if we just had an unusually positive experience, but yeah, I don't remember the traffic being a negative at all. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I will give you that. I mean, for the most part, I'd say 95% of the experience. Yeah, people will definitely give you the space if there is space yeah. to... For them to give you i found that people honk a lot and they usually honk like a little tune so it felt like it was supportive rather than like get the hell out of the way it's more like <laughs> yeah. we see you keep it up and the amount of people who'd like pull into the lay-by ahead of us and like wave us down and give us a bottle of water or a beer or something was just crazy like the amount oh, of unprovoked dude. conversation from people in their cars was awesome Did you guys bring film equipment with you on this trip, like a GoPro or a drone or anything like that? Or did you just... I bought a DSLR camera that I had strapped to my front pannier with uh -huh. bungee cords. And I could sort of reach over while I was cycling and press the photo button. But we didn't take any footage as such. Christian had an app on his phone where he could take a second video each day and it would stitch it together. That's cool. Which is pretty cool to look back on. But no like high quality film. No. Did you... Was that something you took on yours? Like, Was that an important part of your trip? Or... Yeah. I mean... For the first, when I started bikepacking, seriously bikepacking in like 2021, it was all just raw experience. There was no, I mean, there was pictures, of course, just on my phone to snap a picture here and there, but there was no filming of any kind. And then it wasn't until last year when I started taking it really seriously where I, where I had the thought to myself, how cool would it be if I could make like little YouTube videos of just, you know, weekend trips or day trips or whatever. And then of course I did the big bike tour, which I brought a GoPro and I had it strapped to my chest for pretty much the entire time mm -hmm. plus a drone which i threw up from time to time as well and that was a phenomenal decision because I, I i get to look back at all that footage now in fact i literally have it's plugged in but this massive five terabyte hard drive just full of the video from that trip Sweet. and i have done nothing with it <laughs> i've tried many times for like probably like more hours than i actually spent doing the trip trying to stitch something together and uh that's actually a question i have for you how did you 
actually make this happen? Because I've been struggling for literally like 18 months to piece a little documentary together, let alone a book. And, you know, when I picked this up, this just blew my mind. I'm like, man, I wish I could write this well. I mean, there's so many good pros in here and just the way that you structure everything. It's like, you know, brings a tear to my eye in a sense. It's like, man, it's beautiful the way that you describe things. How did you actually manage to get, you know, that experience on the page? Because it's crazy. It's really well done. Oh, that's, that's really kind. Thank you. I'm glad that it resonates. It was a long process. Like you say, stitching the documentary together took you more than the, the ride. Like I thought I thought the ride would be more difficult than the book, but it was definitely the other way around. I started writing that book in September 2017 when we got back from the ride and I published it this August. So that's like a six year gap. And most of that six years was me flip flopping on whether to write the book, wanting to give up, not liking what I had, and then like trying to convince myself back to the writing desk to write some more down. So it was a, a real long fight with myself basically to get it finished. And the version you're reading is, I think, the eighth or ninth rewrite. So whenever you write a book, from what I'm told from other authors, you, the first version of it is just sort of getting it out of your head onto the page with the knowledge that what you come up with isn't going to be that great. So you do the redraft and you sort of unpick it, pick out the good bits, recombine it into something more coherent. And usually that's like the raw material that becomes the final draft. But I went through that process like five or six times. And then I got something I thought I was happy with. And have you heard of the author, Ted Simon? No. Let me write that down though. So he, he went around the world on a motorbike in 1972, I think, before that was like a thing that people did fairly often. So his book that he wrote about it is considered sort of fairly pioneering in the genre. And it's awesome. And he sort of continued motorbike touring for the rest of his life. He's still alive now. He's in his 90s. And he sort of published books and is a public speaker and travel writer, advocate sort of thing. And I saw a tweet from Alistair Humphreys, who I know you spoke to recently, saying that Ted Simon hosts budding travel writers in his house in France as like a incubator sort of system where you go there, stay with him, talk to him about your journey and bounce ideas off him. And he helps you develop your writing. So in 2019, I took my draft that I had to him and stayed with him oh. for a few days. And he was a very harsh, but fair critic. And he was basically like, I don't feel like I can connect with this writing. There's something here but you're not bringing it out in a way that's engaging. And then he sort of taught me some techniques for writing from a place that's more interesting and translates better to paper. So then that was another redraft off the back of that. And then I stopped for a year and then lockdown happened and that sort of took the wind out of my sails completely. And then I rewrote it. And then I and then Alistair Humphreys started editing business so he can he edits manuscripts. And then actually I missed a step there. So last August I took what I thought was my final draft. I was like, I can't get this any better. This is it. I love this. This is like the journey on paper, how I want it to be. And I pitched that to publishers and agents here in the UK. And two people expressed interest, but neither of them went anywhere. So then I was like, right, I've written the book. I've tried to get it published. People aren't interested. What now? And the most inviting answer at that point was to just like put it in a drawer, admit defeat, move on to the next project. But that like, when I decided to do that, there was still this niggling feeling of wanting to get, I wanted it, I wanted to get out into the world so that at least one other person would read it and connect with it. And ideally be inspired to go on a bike tour of their own if they hadn't before. Like, that's my, that's my dream with the book. It's not about like the money or whatever. It's about one person connecting with it in that way. So that's when I saw the tweet from Alistair Humphreys of his editing business. So I sent, I sent him an email saying, can I commission an edit? Here's my manuscript. And he read it and came back with more harsh but fair criticism, which was basically the same. Like, I can't connect with the characters. I'm not invested in the story. And you're leaving a lot of this up to your imagination, which means the reader doesn't have those cues that you have to fill in the gaps. So, that, so then I was back to square one, it felt like. But yeah, push through another rewrite. And that's what happened. So I feel like I've rambled quite a lot there. But basically, the core answer is just keep pushing and be prepared to fight yourself quite a lot, I think. And I don't think everyone has the same experience with the book. I think some people genuinely sit down, write it, 
rewrite the draft and then that's it but for whatever reason this took a, a lot of goes and it seems to be landing so yeah it's good man that's awesome remind me of this guy his ted william or ted, ted simon simon yeah ted simon his journey was wild it was four years in the 70s when the infrastructure for traveling was much less sort of refined and he ended up getting like a container ship passage between south africa and brazil which you can't do anymore and yeah it's just it's just wild but the thing you said earlier about my book mentioning 10 days in like a passing comment he does that as well he'll just miss out entire six month sections he'll be like yeah for this part i was riding through india and it was quite good but then i got to this country so he just skips out like half a year at a time and i'm like it feels like it feels like it could easily be a, it's about 250 pages maybe it feels like it could be three or four times that amount and you feel like you're barely scratching the surface of his experience but yes yeah, it's, it's quite an incredible book yeah i'll have to give that a look once we're done here i noticed something in your book at the very beginning, like not even before, like on this little pamphlet page here, yeah. you you mentioned that uh, the words in these pages started life as journal entries scribbled down at the roadside or in a tent by torchlight. And that's, do you have just like a giant notebook? Yeah, I've got two big journals from that ride. So yeah, I didn't take a video camera, but every night and day I was like jotting down notes a lot. So that's like... That's the raw material I built the book out of. If I had to redo the summer of 2022, which in my opinion was like my best cycling summer so far, it would be to have brought a notebook and written everything down just like at the end of each day for 20 minutes. And then I could look yeah. back on it. So, I mean, the fact that you did that, it's very wise. I would, I would almost argue with myself, you know, this is one of those situations where the grass is always greener, but I would almost argue it would have probably been better to have that than just video because it would be it would have been uh, my thoughts like i wish i didn't write down a lot of visual stuff i wrote down a lot of like impressions and feelings and how i was like my headspace so when i was trying to write about visual descriptions of places it was really difficult because i took a few photos but not many and half the photos i did take got corrupted because my sd mm. card broke when i got back so i lost most of the photos i took so i ended up like trying to piece together these visual descriptions that i could remember so i'd look on google maps at the view and try and combine that with my mind to like get the description so it would be good to have journal and photo potentially but yeah it sounds like you've got plenty of tours coming up in the future so take a take a notepad next time It was unbelievably pleasant to have nothing on my to-do list but to ride a bike, to have each absent email, text, utility bill, or commitment replaced with a pine tree, a bird call, an inquisitive chipmunk, or whatever else Canada had to offer, to feel my mind becoming a little freer and to feel one rhythm shifting into another, with the knowledge that the same thing awaited me in reverse. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and sort of the shifting changes in your mindset as the tour went on. Yeah, for sure. So I remember that moment that was overlooking Lake Okanagan in BC, which was a landscape I was completely unprepared for. I thought we'd just go from Vancouver to the Rocky Mountains. I wasn't expecting this like beautiful, glorious sort of rolling hills and lakes and sunshine in the middle. And we got caught at Roadworks. There was like a lady with a stop sign holding up traffic and saying we could go around the other side of the lake and ride the parallel road or we could wait for an hour and a half and we decided to wait for an hour and a half because the ride around would take longer on a push bike so we were just sort of forced by circumstance to sit in this incredibly beautiful place in glorious sunshine and relax basically and yeah the headspace is i think you just gradually move into that when you're cycling and for me bike touring is the only way i've found to reliably get that headspace like you can get if you go on a long walk or something you can sort of get it but you know that you've got you've got to get home at the end of the day so you never quite get into the same headspace. And I can't really articulate why that is. But yeah, that was just the moment where it hit.
hit and it was lovely and i feel like i read a lot of travel literature where they have similar moments of entering a different headspace but it's easy to drift into a way of writing about it that sounds sort of judgmental or self-righteous so you can if you're reading it say you get home from work and you pick up a book and you read a chapter you can feel like the author is like mocking you a little bit for not taking it on yourself to go and do these cool things yourself so i was really keen to like avoid that um dynamic with that text so i was just trying to highlight how nice it is but also the fact that it's one side of a coin that you're inevitably going to go back to at some point so you shouldn't feel too smug about it i guess so i was trying to get that balance as well <laughs> yeah so i mean I, I guess I guess the next topic that I'd love to shift to, shift to and get your opinion on is this change in landscape as the journey continues. So I believe, yeah, your journey was seventy five hundred kilometers, which is a remarkable amount of distance. Yeah. Did you find one place to be the easiest, one place to be the most difficult? Looking back on it in retrospect, maybe at the time your thoughts on it were different than they are now. Yeah, I think looking back, actually, I think at the time I felt a lot of dread in BC because I was aware that there was this mountain range coming and I hadn't done enough training and my preconception of what the Rockies were going to be like was very different to what they were actually like. I was expecting like really steep inclines, brutal switchbacks like you get on mountains in Europe um, where in reality it was just quite nice gradual climbs where you drop into your lowest gear and chug along for a couple of hours and you're there. So my yeah I felt very anxious approaching the Rockies and then when we got there that sort of melted away and I felt this sort of confidence that I didn't have before and sort of the opposite was true in the prairies. So my preconception was that it would be flat, there'd be a tailwind behind us, and we'd make fairly quick progress. And in reality, there was a headwind all the way, and it was definitely flatter than the Rockies, but there's lots of sort of deceptively punishing hills where you think, because you've prepared yourself for it to be flat, and it's not, it feels like it's more difficult than it would be if you'd just prepared yourself for like a regular terrain, I guess. So those two, my perception of each one sort of flipped when we got there place where it was probably on average easiest to be a cycle tourist was maybe Quebec because they have such good bike infrastructure throughout and it feels like bikes are at the forefront of transport policy rather than sort of an afterthought so there's a quite often bike paths there's the route for that and it was easy to get a route that was less traffic heavy but in retrospect part of that might be because we me and Christian before we met Alex in Quebec City prioritized highways as a deliberate choice so I don't know if that means we could have had a similar experience in like Ontario and the provinces to the west but we just chose not to so I'm not sure about that and then the one place PEI Prince Edward Island stands out as being really sort of pleasant to cycle in as well because the whole island is just crisscrossed by defunct rail network that's been turned into bike paths so you can just ride away from traffic all over the place which is beautiful We flew out in June to start and I didn't have my bike until late March and it wasn't ready. I didn't have the fit until maybe mid-April. So there's only a few weeks between getting the bike and being flying out. I guess, well, me and Christian did a few, I said about we met after work and rode out to some place in the countryside, but that was usually only about 10 miles. So that was more training ourselves to be able to camp wild than cycle distance. So I literally did no deliberate, considered, structured training for the ride. And I'd done long tours before, so I, I knew that I could cover distance in theory. So I was basically just telling myself that the first month would be training for the second two months and that by the time we got into it, our physical fitness would sort of catch up, I guess, which worked fairly well. So in 2013, I rode from Toronto to Quebec City via Algonquin. And that was my, it sounds like some of that route might overlap with yours, which is why I'm interested to see the map at some point. But I remember heading out of Toronto and just being, like you say, crushed by the hills. Like I was, that was the first tour where I had all my my first long tour where I had all my bike, like a fully laden bike with front and rear panniers, very heavy. And I'd not done training for that one either. So I was like arriving fresh 
and there were these like undulating roads so they weren't big hills but it was just up and down and up and down all day and i was crushed by it and my friend alex who i was riding with was just like taking it all in his stride managing fine pacing himself but every time we stopped i was like physically unable to stand my legs were shaking i was knackered each morning i was struggling to get on the bike like pain and i was like i don't know how i'm supposed to do this like this was arriving in algonquin so we still had to go all the way east from algonquin to quebec city and i was like convinced that i wasn't going to make it so in my mind I felt more ready when I came to cycle across, but in the back of my mind somewhere was the that the fact that that might happen again. So the first two weeks, I'd say, were just me taking it slow, trying to eat more, trying to sleep earlier, and just getting used to being on the move. And it just... I don't really have a, a secret or like a clear answer. It just sort of incrementally got easier each day to the point that when we arrived at the foothills of the Rockies and big climbs like the Kicking Horse Pass, the Rogers Pass, we just sort of felt ready for it. And we were pacing ourselves as well. So if one of us needed to stop, we'd just stop and take a break. There was no, like when you said you had mapped out exactly where you needed to be each night, we didn't have that. We were just like, when we get tired, we'll stop and sleep and that will be fine. So there wasn't ever any pressure to cover more distance than we felt comfortable covering, which is something I'd recommend if you have the option to do that, because it definitely takes away the pressure and the physical, like the mental pressure and also the physical pressure that you put on yourself if you have specific places to be. But yeah, just incrementally got fitter. And then once the Rockies were behind us, that was like a massive mental shift where, like it says in the book, I felt for the first time, like confident that I'd make it across. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much exactly how I would say that as well, where it's almost it's almost impossible to prep for this unless you go onto Google Maps and just look at the exact route and be like, oh, there's like there's so many hills. I'll stop here. I'll stop there. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to train for such a sport. And um, some training that I've done is basically my friend and I, we will just go to the gym three days a week and just do nothing but leg strength things cool. where it's just like tons and tons and tons of reps of just squatting for like 150 reps, doing like a bunch of different uh, quad and calf and hamstring exercises. And that's just what we do. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's no benching. There's no shoulder press. We just hit legs. Bionic legs. That's good. Bionic exactly. legs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I um, mean, that's pretty much all you can do for this sport. And in, in, in a sense, if I was to cycle across Canada, I would definitely go from Vancouver and then move east as well, because that's typically where the wind goes. The wind here usually goes from west to east. So it, you know, you feel like, oh, I'll be lucky and I'll have the wind with me the entire time. And then, of course, you mentioned the prairies and how that was the opposite. Yeah. What was the reasoning for starting in Vancouver and not Nova Scotia? So we did... I didn't do very much research. I just had the idea of riding across. Um, my friend Christian, who came with me, is very motivated by research. So he spent a lot of time reading cycling forums, looking at routes, piecing together rides that other people had done. And he suggested west to east. So in my mind, we'd go west to east, but basically just by default. I think I just read that the Great Trail goes from Vancouver east. So in my mind, riding across, you go that way. But he sort of backed it up with the vast majority of people who'd ridden across went that way. And one of the main reasons they gave in the touring forums was in the prairies, the tailwind will be behind you and it will make it a lot easier. So a lot of it centered on that piece of information, which was for us false. And I don't, I imagine for most people it's true, but yeah, we were caught, caught off guard there. But I think if I did it again, I'd choose to go west to east because if we'd have gone east to west, we'd have hit the Kabot Trail about a week in. And those were the kind of gradients that I was dreading in the Rockies, where you just get like 15, 20% inclines that are very punishing physically, rather than the sort of six to 7% inclines you get in the Rockies. So I think if we'd got to the Kabot Trail a week in, I wouldn't have had that like mental shift to feeling confident. I think that would have probably defeated me. So I'm glad in retrospect we did it that way. Thank you. 
There was one moment that was a bit intense, and that's when we were trying to find somewhere to sleep in Nova Scotia. And we were going, it was like a main road and lots of trunk roads going north to the coast. And we were going up and down each trunk road trying to find a way to get to the beach so we could camp. And one house had their yard fence left open and three dogs came tearing out, barking and chasing us. And we all, we all turned around and cycled past the other way, but they were keeping up and like yapping, like biting as they ran. So it felt almost like we might be at risk from these dogs, but we managed to outrun them. And then we noticed that they were like wagging their tail as they ran as well. So they probably weren't meaning that much harm. And as I was saying that, I remembered another moment where we, this was in Quebec, across the Gaspé Peninsula, so sort of rural Quebec, away from the cities. And we found a really nice campsite in a truck stop. It was like a nice river, a little pontoon dock that we could sit on. All our tents were set up. And this guy pulls up in his SUV and he's got like, his shirt is buttoned down to just above his belly button. He's got like a big hairy chest, a dollar medallion. And he comes like swaggering out of his car. And basically, so me and Christian didn't speak French, but my friend Alex spoke French. And this guy spent about an hour trying to convince Alex to come back to his heated hot tub for like an evening of passion basically and was very adamant that it was the invite was only for Alex and not for us which was kind of weird and eventually we managed to convince him to go away but then the next day we pulled into a town and this guy pulled in behind us and we were like is he following us or is this just a coincidence and he didn't try and talk to us again so we think it might have been just a coincidence but very briefly there I wondered whether we were being followed by someone with sort of questionable motives I guess but yeah they're the two worst experiences and they were neither of them felt that threatening just mainly funny in retrospect but compared to some of the stuff I've read about in other people's like bike books where I don't know if you've read Al Humphrey's books about where he cycled around the world and he's in Turkey I think Istanbul maybe and he's camping on like a roadside somewhere and gets surrounded by basically drug-addled children and they start harassing him so nothing like that happened nothing genuinely dangerous we were told constantly that various stretches of road were like the most dangerous in Canada so we were always kind of primed for particularly dangerous junctions or drivers or whatever but again nothing really happened on those and then we wondered whether it's because of like later on someone told us to not go on the roads on labor day because people drink drive quite a lot so we were wondering whether those sections are dangerous because they have more drink drivers but we could never really figure it out so yeah we were warned a lot about danger that never materialized i'd say was our defining experience of canada <laughs> so i don't know about you but I, I feel like a lot of my cycling has always centered around music in a way. Like every time I go out biking, I, I would say like 80, 75, 80% of the time I always have music on. Mm -hmm. And I have these playlists on Spotify of summer of 2020, summer of 2021, summer of 2022, etc. And it's just like hundreds of songs that are individual from each other playlist, each other summer. And, you know, once or twice a year, very rarely I'll go back and I'll listen to that music and it'll just like suck me right back into the moment it's a way that it's something that i've done sort of subconsciously but now it's more intentional of just a way where it's almost like creating notes because when i listen to that music it just takes me right back to the mindset that i was in and in that same sense it also i can also look back and see like how my interest in music has shaped my adventures and like how it's changed over time and the, the genres that i've gone through and whatnot do you have anything like that anything on a personal level that you put your memories in it doesn't have to be music necessarily but something similar yeah definitely i've actually got a playlist on spotify called canada highlights and it's the songs that teleport me back to the the ride and the majority of them each night when we got to camp we'd christian had a bluetooth speaker and we'd take it in turns playing music and we sort of gravitated to a 
there was like a heavy rotation of tracks that kept coming back up and they all centered on this mood they, they all share the same mood that's hard to articulate but that mood just brings me right back to the ride so i listen to that every once in a while when i want to get back into the headspace of it and a lot of those songs was like i presume you've read the part in bc where we go to the dispensary that was yes. not technically legal but functionally legal so we, we got some so most nights we'd get to camp and have like roller roller joint and have that couple of beers and just sort of relax and debrief on the day in this sort of beautiful surroundings with this music playing so it's a really strong a strong feeling and like it really evokes strong memories as well so yeah i definitely do that yeah i'll share that playlist with you if you like i'd be interested to sort of check out a couple of yours and see see what what sort of stuff's in there because whether it's the same sort of whether canada invites the same sort of music from different different people or whether it's a completely different vibe yeah no absolutely i will 100 percent. yeah i'll share those with you and i'll share the map with you and uh yeah we can we can touch base on all the all the different experiences i quite often had one headphone in when we were riding and i'd have like there was a few bands with pumping albums that i'd put on and i've got a memory of riding towards the Cabot trail in nova scotia on this day it was just torrential rain all day it'd been raining constantly for like three or four days so we were just saturated all of our stuff was wet every car that went past would send a tidal wave of spray up to soak us again and i just had this music blasting in my ears that i still every time i listen to that it takes me back to that like specific stretch of road as well so it's really cool the link that can form between music and being on on a ride of some sort I think we're very lucky because basically all the way to maybe eastern Quebec, I think we only had one or two days rain. There's one day in BC where it was sort of drizzly and we had to put on our raincoats, but that was about it. And I just remember riding in like 35 degree heat, topless sunshine for the majority of the way across and it was glorious. We also rode about a week ahead of some wildfires behind us. So a couple of people we rode with in BC ended up having to go home because they got caught in wildfires like ahead of them. So they had to turn back. So to me, that's testament to how hot it was but i don't know if that's there must be a link somewhere between those two things but yeah so it's just really hot really sunny all the way across and then we got to eastern quebec and pei and nova scotia and it just rained constantly for maybe a fortnight so we'd got complacent a little bit with or not complacent we'd been spoiled by the weather so when it rained it really uh shifted the rhythm because you can't just stop wherever you want you can't just camp wherever you want you have to find somewhere where you're going to be reliably dry or sheltered so the the dynamic of finding a campsite changed in the last two weeks i'd say and then all the way around the Cabot trail it was just either torrential rain or really low-hanging cloud so we could only see like 10 feet in front of us which is very different to riding the rockies where we could see like hundreds of miles out across the horizon so it was the rain made it a lot more difficult but it also changed the aesthetic of the ride in a way that was nice to experience well it's one of those things again where when you experience it you think it's the most brutal thing in the world but then when you look back at it in retrospect you you just you just sort of wish you almost appreciated it more in the moment where you're like man it was perfect the way it was i wouldn't have changed a single thing about it and uh, i wish i sort of embraced it can you maybe give me the just like a brief of what you brought with you in terms of camping equipment yeah so i tried to separate i tried to plan it by room so each pannier would be a separate room because i wanted to know where everything was all the time and not have the stress of like hunting for stuff in bags where i didn't know where it was so when i got to camp i'd chuck down one bag and that would be my like my bedroom so i'd put my tent up chuck the bedroom bag inside and that was everything i needed to sleep and then i had my wardrobe like all my clothes in there the kitchen so the kitchen room had the kitchen bag had like a, a little gas stove we went pretty lightweight in terms of cooking i think so 
we had one small sort of screw in gas stove each and Christian bought a jet boil, which just really quickly boils water. I had a bugaboo, which is a sort of nesting set of pans and bowls and plates and cutlery. So in the size of one pan, you've got two pans, a frying pan, four bowls, four cups and loads of cutlery, which served us really well until it got sent to landfill accidentally in Manitoba. So we lost we lost some gear at that point and had to like recalibrate a little bit. And then I had like a spares and repairs bag, which just had spare tires punch repair kit all that sort of stuff and then miscellaneous so i had my camera which ended up being if i did it again i'd take a much smaller camera because it was huge i had a stack of books which again i'd take a kindle next time because it just loads of dead weight yeah i think that's it and then journals and pens and stuff but i didn't take much specialists because i know some bike packing setups it's about like how much gear you can get into the smallest space and how efficient you can make your load out so we weren't trying to follow that sort of philosophy as much we just sort of took what we needed to be to be comfortable so did you have four racks or like on the, like two on the front two on the back or how was your setup there yeah i had a pannier bag on each side at the back and then my sleeping bag on top at the back and then on the front i had one that goes over like one bag that goes over the top with a bag on top of that as well you mentioned a couple of things on earlier in the talk about like the the approach you take to how meticulous you are of planning your route and the approach you take to what type of bike you have and how long you spend configuring it and stuff i feel like there's all these opportunities to get really caught up on the details whether it's the bike you've got or the route or what you're taking and at a certain point some people spend too much time on those details that they don't actually do any rides if that makes sense me and Christian had a very fairly similar attitude, which was just take what we think we need and work it out as we go. Like the most important thing was getting there and getting on the road. And if anything wasn't working, we could sort of refine it as we went. So I remember buying quite a lot of gear in Vancouver because I didn't bring some stuff that we realized we needed. And then we changed gear on the way. And it was just like the process where we were refining what we had as we went. You saw, As you're riding, you get lessons and insights from the road that let you figure out your load up in a way you can't really do on pen and paper in advance, I think. And then like repeat tours, you can carry those lessons forward as well a few times on my on my trip where i knew in advance that for the next two days i wouldn't be coming across any town so i had to load everything up into my bag that would last me for 48 hours mm -hmm. and i found that the water was the real main struggle <laughs> to yep. carry because it, it, it just a little bit adds up to so much weight and you don't really know where to put it because it takes up so much volume yeah uh, did you have any experiences like that on your trip where you knew that you had to pack stuff in for multiple days because you would be sort of in the wild for a bit yeah and it was always water like you say i remember going into the prairies we put so much extra water on our bikes we had like maybe 10 liters each at one point because Damn. we didn't know how reliable water supply would be between towns or within towns like whether people would open their door and fill up water if we knocked or whether there'd be shops so we just sort of played it safe and took way more than we needed and then there was a stretch coming out of manitoba where we had to because of circumstances we had to load up on quite a lot of food because again we weren't sure what we'd find i feel like in canada the routes we took you're never that far away where you need to take like spare cassettes or chain rings or like really granular gear parts because it feels like you're never that far away from a town or somewhere where you can fix something if it goes that wrong so it's not like when tourists go across like the inner mongolia and they're like three weeks from the nearest tiny little village so it never felt that remote but yeah definitely water and food i'd say we stocked up on So we got all the way to Eastern Ontario, past Algonquin, without any punctures, which I thought was pretty, pretty special. Oh yeah. Um, and then we had like 20 punctures in a two-day window. So the tires had obviously, yeah, obviously hit the point where they oh. weren't. Uh, maybe not that many, but it was definitely like multiple stops a day to fix punctures until we could get new tires in Montreal. 
the biggest mechanical issue we had was Christian's pedal fell off and kept falling off. So something was going on with the thread on the pedal that attached it to the crank arm. I can't remember how he fixed that. That kept coming off multiple times a day. And then we went to a bike shop and they managed to sort of get some fix that held until we could get to a proper bike shop. But yeah, in the grand scheme of things, no, no real, no real issues. Maybe you could share with us some final thoughts on um, sort of what you have planned for the future. I know that you mentioned to me that you actually have a newborn kid and everything like that. So congratulations mm -hmm. there. Um, maybe yeah. you can tell me a little bit about what, you, what your future looks like. My plan is to get her on the bike as soon as possible, yep. which will be, I spoke to someone at a bike project I volunteer at, and they said they got their kid a balanced bike on its first birthday and a real bike on their third birthday. And that was a progression that meant they could ride at the age of three. So we're aiming for that. But then hopefully in three to four months, she'll be able to sit on a seat on my bike once she can reliably like hold her head up and keep herself supported. So first step is getting her used to being on a bike, hopefully enjoying it. And then I've got plans to get a tandem with a baby seat between me and my wife and a dog trailer on the back so that we can go on like family family tours and then see where we go from there so, so is your wife a big cyclist as well she's keen on the concept of cycling we haven't done much together over the years for various reasons but i think if we have a tandem and a trailer and the family then we can do some stuff she's keen she's really keen on the idea of going across america one day but i think we've got quite a lot of training to do in the interim like smaller tours local stuff but so maybe in five ten years we'll do that yeah i'm interested to see what happens Thank you so much for joining this week's episode of the Trailmark Podcast. Make sure to check out Chris's new book, Eastwards and Far. You can find Chris on his website, which is chrisleefrancisoneword.com or on Twitter at chrislee underscore is. The bike is the ultimate adventure machine. As Chris says, it's quick enough to cover distance, but slow enough to force immersion. Thank you.